This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome and happy Family Day. Well, it seems like good news, but is it just a tease? We're learning that the Ontario government is adding people over 80 in the community to the priority list for vaccinations. And this, as you heard in Jeremy's news, as hundreds of thousands of doses of Pfizer are supposedly arriving soon. But Despite the fact that all kinds of healthcare experts are urging the government to make age the determining factor, 96% of deaths are older people. There are all kinds of other people on that list. We've got staff in retirement homes. We've got lower risk healthcare workers. We've got all Indigenous adults. We've got professionals like chiropractors and massage therapists. And Higher risk healthcare workers are still ahead of older people in the queue. And this, as British Columbia, Quebec, Alberta, and Saskatchewan have all confirmed that seniors between 70 and 80 and older will be next in line. And Quebec plans to go down by age to the age of 60, which seems to be the age where the risk of death starts going way up. Now, this doesn't even begin to address the question of how people will be informed when it's their turn. It's something that I know people are very anxious about. I know that because they tell me, they write us, and how they will get to the vaccination sites. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866- 740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome David Kravitz, VP of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hey guys, happy Family Day. Happy Family Day, Libby. Libby. Okay, so uh, we have the government updating this priority list, of course, with no actual ETA on this. And again, am, am I right to notice that in Ontario, that priority list seems to be a lot more cluttered than it is in other provinces where they seem to be taking heat. Let's make it simple. Age. David. I think you're right. I think there are a lot of qualifiers um, and it is more streamlined in the other uh, provinces for sure. Uh, It also, uh, I mean, it is good news on the face of it, but it also, as you pointed out in your intro, opens up a lot of questions. But I think one of them is, how confident are they uh, in the supply um, of all the uh, vaccines that are arriving in the country? How many of them are earmarked for Ontario? Um, and uh, how carefully, how closely do they have to manage uh, a supply that still might be flaky? And is that responsible for some of these triaging decisions they're making? That's a very good question. But again, you know, um, all of these uh, politicians especially seem to be going out on a limb with great certainty. They're saying these are coming next week. Of course, if they don't come next week, it's going to be somebody else's fault, Bill, right? Uh, yeah, it will be. The, the government is back and forth on this. And your opening comments, Libby, you took the words right out of my mouth. You'll recall back at uh, beginning of December. Sorry, Bill. Talk- <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I said, sorry, I took the words right out of your mouth. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Again, I did it. No, it's okay. I, I'll expand on them anyway, because back in, back in December, uh, beginning, very beginning of December, uh, the, we all talked about the fact that the province had promised that it would follow the NASI guidelines, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, and we were quite pleased uh, with that. Since then, they've they've veered off those guidelines. Every time we've turned around, they're ignoring the recommendations of the health experts and going into other areas. It was very clear right at the uh, beginning that uh, the recommendation was those people most at risk of dying 
would get they would get them first and now we see that they've gone gone past that uh, the, the other provinces are going over 70 they're going over 60 and uh, here in ontario uh we're putting all kinds of people ahead of our most at risk citizens uh and, you know, I don't know, David, it seems like it. there's a, a, a free-for-all type of lobbying because now I'm hearing, what about TTC drivers? We've got chiropractors. And not that these people are not, I mean, they are putting themselves at risk in their daily jobs. There's no question about that. But uh, again, uh, you know, it is the older people that is most at risk of dying is, you know, what do you think is going on here? It's a function of the looseness of the strategy and the moving of the goalposts from the get-go, right from the beginning. Is your strategy to minimize fatalities, or is it to, uh, you know, immunize wide swaths of the population against infection? Obviously, it's desirable. Obviously, a 45-year-old TTC driver getting a two two vaccines who then becomes immune is a highly desirable outcome. But if your supply is is very constrained as it is right now, and if we know that 96% of the actual fatalities have been among those that are 60-plus, and if you're trying to save lives, then you should be going where the people are at the greatest risk of dying from coronavirus, not simply, um, you know, becoming infected with coronavirus, as desirable that is, that is. So they don't really have a laser focus on saving lives here. That's the, that's the sad part of this. No, and, they, they, and they could have if they followed the NASA guidelines. It's not that the other essential workers aren't in that list. They very, very clearly said uh, people who are over 70, healthcare workers who work directly with them, adults in Indigenous communities, they were in the first uh, group, along with, of course, the resident staff in, in long-term care facilities. But immediately after that, they talked about healthcare workers not included in the initial rollout, uh, residents and staff of other uh, places like correctional facilities and homeless shelters, and other essential workers. So they're in the queue. It's a matter of who's the most, as David said, likely to die and who should we get to first. Yeah, and, and you know, from, from my point of view, and I remember way back when we first started talking about a vaccine, hearing our, the country's chief doctor, Teresa Tam, talking about age. And the thought that I have is that the simpler it is, the less likely it is to get messed up. I mean, last week, especially, we were hearing about, I mean, this involved malfeasance, practically uh, criminal, of vaccine doses getting diverted. But I think the wider and longer these lists are, and the more open to interpretation, the more likely we are to see vaccines going astray. David? For sure. No, for sure. Because because if there isn't clarity and if there isn't focus, then these episodes are only going to uh, spread or we're going to hear about more of them. I'm not concerned about uh, you know one or two doses out of eventually millions. If things are going to happen. Um, people aren't going to show up for appointments. Decisions are going to have to be made about what to do with vaccines so that they don't spoil and so forth. But if they had some clarity, then I've got to tell you, you alluded to this in the intro, but I think it's a, a, a huge topic. I cannot tell you how many people have asked me, uh, when, I'm, where do I go to get it? How am I going to find out? Who's going to tell me? Do I have to line up at a, uh, they're talking now about using empty target stores. I mean, is there going to be a, a super site where I've got to stand in line all day? Will I have to make an appointment? Can I make an appointment online? There's been no real clarity around what they're going to do with this, with the stuff, even when they get their hands on. Okay. Well, here, and, and here I have to send a very negative shout out to Toronto Public Health. And, uh, I'm not even sure if the people running it are aware. It's certainly their, commu- alleged communications people. So 
last week, with great fanfare, they showed these vaccination centers off at the convention center and other large venues that are going to be vaccination sites. And we wanted to talk to some Toronto Public Health people for a little bit of clarity on that and the kind of hostile, condescending, patronizing response just from their communications people uh, telling us that we are not important enough to get some answers to those questions and we should ask the province. Uh, I will be talking to the, the head of the vaccine uh, uh, rollout task force for the province, Dirk Heyer, tomorrow. Uh, but, but the kind of non-response from Toronto Public Health, and I call you out Toronto Public Health, and older people are sick of being patronized in this way. It's probably by some millennial communications person. But uh, there you <laughs> go. I there, mean, yeah. they the, and and the fact is, the fact is that even when it came to the regular flu rollout, there were major problems with communications from Toronto Public Health, which for some reason is still responsible to getting that out to doctors' offices. So I can't imagine that they are going to be able to properly get in touch with people. And, and, you know, a lot of people have contacts all over the world and they're being told they have friends in Britain who have been personally telephoned by, by the national health service. Well, it's true. I have, I have, uh, and, and I have family, uh, uh, in-laws in, in Ohio and, uh, uh, woman who's over 80 and there's a very clear procedure that was well understood where you phone how you make an appointment where you go uh, it was stressful because uh, they're struggling with supply issues and getting you know i mean distribution issues as well but at least it was very clear what to do uh, thankfully she was able to uh, get her first shot and get an appointment for a second shot um, but there was no there was no ambiguity about what to do about it, where you were going to go, how you were going to go about it, and there's been no clarity here that I'm aware of. Zero, zero, and and they haven't figured it out. I mean, if you're if if any of them are listening, and I highly doubt it because they are in their <laughs> own bureaucratic bubble. Um, and I won't say the same, like it's a very different story with Peel Public Health that is responsive and, and York Public Health. But if anybody is listening, since Toronto Public Health is in is not very good at communicating and not interested, I would say they should, since they they do have some kind of, you know, they do have fax machines that that contact doctors that they should harness uh, the communications capability of our doctors and our pharmacies, who can certainly do that kind of thing. And it's and it's really it's really a horrible thing to hear you say this because implicit in the phrase public health is the need to communicate. It's where medicine cross intersects or crosses over with the public. There are public information campaigns, public awareness campaigns, behaviors that you are soliciting on the part of the public. And some sort of communication skill, one would think, would be uh, very much a part of that mandate along with, uh, you know, hope for medical uh, expertise. But, you know, that's one part of medicine where I would have thought communications was was a key part of the mandate. Well, they do these briefings like we, we hear from Eileen Davila all the time. But but try to ask Eileen Davila a question from us. I forget it. So, um, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah though, uh, we almost see too much of them, <laughs> but, yeah. but the question that is literally on, on everyone's mind and, and, uh, maybe it's fair enough that they haven't figured it out yet. But what I'm saying is that given the past performance on issues like this, I don't think that they in particular will be able to figure this out. And it just, it's, it's a question of anxiety. I mean, I hope that there are max, mass vaccination sites, and maybe you won't need an appointment that if you're in one of the right groups, you can just show up. There's also the question, I mean, are, is there going to be a difficulty for getting people there? You know, I was thinking, actually, you know, there, we have quite a number of charities that give people lifts, but it's yeah. COVID time. A lot of people who do that probably uh, don't want out. to be yeah. doing that these no. days. No. And they were inviting, they're inviting the public to conclude that they have not figured it out. And you've got this weird sort of um, 
two separate worlds where when you listen to, you know, whether it's the premier or whether it's the public health officials or a minister, they're all telling you how hard they were. And I'm not, I'm not disputing that, how anxious they are and how stressful this must be and how hard they're working. And there's this great void where their failure to communicate creates the perception that they really are making it up. Now, maybe they're not. Maybe the public health people are within a day or two of announcing a beautiful, elegant, smoothest silk process for getting the vaccines when they arrive. But in the absence of uh, any communication whatsoever and frequent changes in what they've done so far, uh, what other conclusion? What do I tell people? I'm getting a lot of calls. I never, haven't had this happen before, but where do I go? What do I do? When are they going to tell us? Well, and, and it was, again, uh, I mean, you know, maybe they're, they're pretty good at photo ops, but last week we, we saw on, on television and on the Internet with great fanfare these vaccination centers. It's like, yes. okay, they're the same places that are used for the flu regular flu rollout often. Okay, you've got these places, but but there are other pieces to the puzzle. And again, you know, I'm I'm not entirely sure that the over eighty even the over eighties are are going to be getting there with ease. No, especially especially if the weather becomes a challenge. Uh, yeah, that is supposed to be happening as we speak, as we speak and, and overnight. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, where do I go? Even when you tell me where I go now, I mean, they're not to blame for the weather, but again, it, <laughs> it really just shows you the, the need for clarity and the absence of same. Yeah. Um, it's really critical. I, I want to turn a bit to some testimony before the, the long-term care commission, that was uh, getting lost in this, and it was from uh, an infection control, a provincial infection control officer who basically said that the homes were not receptive to them coming in and they were told to lay low because they thought this is before the pandemic. Uh, they thought that they might be in the province's crosshairs for firing. I mean, it's all kind of um, shocking. I saw that, and they and they and they had expertise that went unused because they they thought it was going to be uh, contradictory. And uh, again, it speaks to uh, you know who's on first, who's running the show. What were they? What did they know at the time? And how did they come up with some of these decisions? Is not a very uh, reassuring uh, picture of what went on. You know, Bill. I mean, when I look at this, I just shake my head and think that there there is plenty of blame to go around. So there's there's uh, government officials, the provincial government officials, who seem to have no capacity, even if they made uh, some good decisions, to see that those decisions are are carried out. Uh, we have civil servants doing things like. Uh, inspection by phone in we have these other civil servants infection control officers who who uh aren't their expertise isn't being used and it's not clear who is blocking them we have uh the heads of the homes saying that even when they asked for help the help didn't come fast enough and there was a lot of uh bureaucracy in between i mean it it looks like total breakdown at every level Bill. All uh, regulation and enforcement is completely out of control. It's ineffectual. And, and that's obvious to anybody who, who looks at it. It's not working. And when, when an inspector says there that the homes don't want them in, therefore they're not going. I mean, how ridiculous uh, is, is, is that? Uh, in, inexcusable. And no wonder the uh, residents of the homes and their families are losing complete faith in the government's ability to enforce even the minimum rules and regulations that uh, are on paper today. Well, it's government's period. And, and David, I, I contrast this. You know, in Quebec, there's an inquiry underway about Maison Aaron, which is like that the horrible... Yeah. The worst case scenario. Well, you know what? Here in Ontario, when there are places with multiple violations, they say, oh, we can't do anything because there'll be nowhere to go for those residents. That place is shut down. 
Well, the, uh, yeah, and, the, and, and the default position of there'll be nowhere to go for these residents, um, why do we need to accept that? We may need to accept that, you know, for a very, you know, I found out about it Monday, I can't turn the turf to people out Tuesday morning, but there's been this whole passivity about um, there aren't any alternatives, we just have to kind of muddle along. And I'm starting and the- to see, I'm starting to see this, you know, a, a lot of people are questioning when you compound this with the Fed's uh, uh, problems acquiring the vaccines in the first place. You wonder if there's a kind of a malaise in that sector of the public service that just says we don't know it's too big for us. We can't whether it's healthcare in general, whether it's wait times, whether it's uh, all the issues connected with our under delivery of acceptable healthcare compared to other jurisdictions, whether there is a, a sort of a systemic thing in that field uh, that needs to be looked at um, and made into an election issue at both the federal and provincial levels. And I can tell you that CARP is highly interested in making this uh, an election issue at both levels. Yeah, and well, what I'm what I'm saying partly is that given Quebec was the worst, it was ground zero for the worst, but there seems to be political will to yes. fix things there. They put infection control officers in nursing homes. I don't know if they were people who already worked in the government. I think they were newly hired and paid appropriately. They put uh, people in there and they are taking action now and we seem to be incapable of acting here. Yes, and they were far more aggressive about staffing up and hiring more staff. Absolutely. Recruiting more staff and paying them. Uh, But in Ontario, it seems to be, uh, the mindset seems to be very check-the-box driven, paperwork driven. Um, And, you know, you read, I've read, I've done this, uh, you read the inspection reports from the summer, incident reports, which, uh, you know, they got a complaint from nursing home ABC, so they went in and looked at, which they should. And, you know, didn't anybody think while you're in there in the middle of the summer in the hiatus between wave one and wave two, couldn't you look around the building? No, no, I was called in because a staff member was verbally abusive to a resident, and that's what I'm here for. That's all I'm going to look at, and that's all I'm going to report. Here's my report. I've checked all the boxes, and call me next time there's a problem. And that seemed to have been the attitude uh, pervading the whole thing. Hmm. And uh, ag- again, I mean, you know, we seem to be uh, way behind the eight ball compared to other provinces, Bill. Yeah, other provinces uh, have taken uh, steps, for instance, when there have been long-term care homes that were under pressure because they had too many people in the rooms, too many people to look after. They took over local hotels and move people out of the long-term care homes into local uh, local hotels. There are, we don't have to look beyond our own country for a solution to all the issues we've we've talked about today. And uh, you know, city of Toronto was large, but it's not uh, larger than many of these provinces who are all, have already solved the problem across the country. Uh, we don't seem to be willing to look outside to see what. What has uh, what others have done, and we don't seem to be able to take action to do something about it now. I know it, it's extremely discouraging, and uh, you know where the province here is starting to open up today. Uh, here in Toronto, it's going to be at least another week, and this, as we're finding all these this evidence of these new, more contagious and possibly more deadly variants, and even if they're not more deadly, if they're more contagious, they will result in more death. And guess where that's going to be? Of course, it'll be in the same age group that suffered so far. Okay, is there we 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 have to start <laughs> wrapping things picture. up. Is there anything uh, uh, positive that anybody has to say, Bill? Well, there there was some uh, hopefully positive news this morning about the uh, vaccine suppliers being able to uh, deliver more vaccines than we thought at the end of last week. They they uh, might be, although still that annoying question about they're counting six doses per vial and the government's only counting five, and where that's going to go, why they can't get their heads together is hard to understand. But if the if it's going to be ready, if the vaccines are going to be ready, then we better start communicating with the uh, older adults in the province and tell them how to get these vaccines. 
Other provinces are using phone calls. They're using hard copy letters. They're not using online where, where seniors aren't. Hopefully in Ontario, we'll do the same. Uh, David. I think that Bill's right. I think that that is the good news. I mean, if the vaccines arrive, then no matter how you mess it up, you're still going to wind up vaccinating a whole bunch of people that are currently at risk. So I suppose that's an improvement. But uh, I'm waiting to see uh, if some official can stand up and spell out exactly what is going to happen and when. And uh, then I'll then I'll be willing to say it's good news. Okay. Um, it's uh, Family Day. My next segment is going to be on Family Day. And uh, let me ask you this, David. Are, uh, are you seeing your family? Or are you still not seeing your grandchildren and your children? We have, uh, we have perfected FaceTime and Zoom. Um, and that's what we're doing. And we've done it all the way through. And we're going to continue to do it that way. And it's, it's sort of become its own thing, which is, which is nice in a way. And and do you miss seeing them in? Uh... Oh yeah, of course we did. You know, when the weather was nicer, we were able to go outside and see uh, uh, my grandson. We would visit. They he'd come out uh, with my daughter. We'd stay, and you know, everybody was masked up, but we were outdoors. And it was you know in the fall, let's say when the weather was okay. But now it's impossible uh, to do that, so we're we were back to virtual. Okay, and Bill, what about you? Well, we're using virtual, too. We were able last weekend for a birthday to get together with a couple of them, but today it will all be online. Okay. Well, happy Family Day, and thanks so much, David Kravitz and Bill Van Gorder. Thanks, Libby. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks, Libby. Valentine's Day. Happy Family Day. Okay, (laughs) all of the above. Okay, we're taking a quick break, and when we come back, a very strange Family Day, and and I'm going to want to hear from you, the audience. Uh, You probably, people are either surrounded by family all the time or miss them. So uh, I'm the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740, and we'll have more on this when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's family day today, and it's a strange one. For most people, it's feast or famine. On the one hand, some have too much family around all the time. Two parents trying to work at home while kids are learning online, needing help with that. And maybe there are also grandparents there in multi-generational homes. On the other hand, a lot of older people have been cut off, at least physically, from their kids and grandkids. And this has gone on for months. I would like to hear from you. Are you in either of those situations? Or maybe you fall somewhere in between. How are you connecting on this family day? Are you connecting? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. Now I'm joined by psychologist Sarah Dimmerman and Globe and Mail food columnist Lucy Waverman, who has a wonderful extended family that she misses. Hi there. Hi, everyone. Hello, Libby. Hi. Uh, let us begin with uh, Lucy. L- Lucy. Um, hi, Lucy. Hi, Lib. Um, tell us uh, about your family. How many kids? How many grandkids? And uh, uh, what's the situation? Well, we have three children and we have seven grandchildren. Our grandchildren are now older. Um, they're teenagers, all of them. And it is harder in a way be able to relate to teenagers through this whole pandemic than it is to younger kids. Because with younger kids, there's always games you can do over Zoom, you can read with them, you can do all sorts of things like that. But older grandchildren are not really that interested in it. Uh huh. And you're only seeing them over Zoom, right? Uh, we see them over Zoom and we have um, backyard visits um, for like 10 to 15 minutes. Um, when the weather is okay, or even if it's very cold, like they came, they came over yesterday and we just, you know, we stood, I don't know, about 10 feet apart and, and chatted for a few minutes. But these visits, even though 
seeing the kids is wonderful because you see the changes in them um, and you hear changes in them. It doesn't make up for um, having the real relationships. Um, in my opinion, there are ways of going about it. Um, and maybe you want to talk about that now or maybe later. Okay, uh, let's bring in psychologist Sarah Dimmerman. What's that doing to people? You know, um, family is everything. Well, absolutely. I mean, what Lucy was saying is is so true in regards to, uh, you know, being separated from your adult children, from your grandchildren, from, um, you know, younger, everybody being separated from one another. I think that on a day like today, family day, where often families would get together in larger gatherings, obviously that's not happening. So a lot of people are connecting over Zoom, but then a lot of people are also suffering from what's called Zoom fatigue. So as you said, as you said, Lucy, you know your your adult your your teenage grandchildren are probably doing uh, either a hybrid of learning online or doing all of their learning online. So when they when you know it comes to chatting with grandma or grandpa on Zoom again, they often, it's not because they don't love the grandparents, it's just because they've just had enough and they want to take a break from screens, ironically. I mean, here we have kids (laughs) wanting to take a break from screens and wanting to go to school, which is, you know, if if COVID has done anything, it's done that. So it is, it is very challenging and and people are having to find very creative ways to keep in touch with one another. And, And for a lot of families, this has been exceptionally difficult or it is exceptionally difficult. Uh, is there an issue also? I mean, you know, frankly, some people are not as strict as others. And I know, Lucy, that you are very strict and, and that has a lot to do. Your husband is is older. Mm-hmm. Bruce, um, do, I mean, do you um, how do you handle that? Do you have people in, in, you know, friends who are maybe not as strict? And, and what's your reaction? to that? Well, we're um, we're strict. Because, not just because of us, but our children um, are very conscious of their kids being in school, or if not in school, they they do meet their friends, and even though they say they're socially distanced, who really knows? Um, so it's been our kids have been major movers in uh, not having um, interaction, not just us. We wouldn't want it either, but but the kid and the and they have have made it very clear to the grandchildren. But, there, you know, you're absolutely right about screen time. I mean, they don't really want to talk to you. The Zoom calls with grandchildren can be quite stilted. But if you can do something with them that they like, you'd be surprised at how, how they react. For example, and this is just awful, I did a TikTok with, um, <laughs> two, with two of my granddaughters, right? But they loved it, and then they made it feel, they felt, that there was a, a relationship there that they were missing. I mean, you do have to understand that you have to really try to deal with them on their level. Uh, something else that one of my daughters did, she did a video, um, got all the grandchildren in it, they chatted, and then they sent us the video. That was fantastic. So isn't a TikTok a video? Yeah, but she did like a talking video. Sorry. Oh, so it t- so so. What was involved in doing a TikTok? Well, I had to learn the moves. <laughs> oh, it's a dance. It was a dance. Uh-huh. I had to learn the moves, and then once I learned them, uh, we all got on three screens. Right? They played the music, and we all did it together. <laughs> Oh, I'd love to see that. <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever going to see it. <laughs> um, actually, they didn't publish it, which I thought was a shame they should have. I mean, I made a complete fool of myself. But you need to do things like that, I think, in order to attract your children's attention. And it doesn't have to be TikTok, your grandchildren's attention. It doesn't have to be TikTok. It can be something on what, that they like, you know, it's hard. It's so hard not seeing them. But we did a we did a, a quiz. Uh, one of my daughters made up this quiz, and we all got on and got points and prizes. You know, that sounds that sounds like fun. And and Sarah, I certainly know what you mean by Zoom fatigue. I mean personally, by the time I'm done with work, 
the last thing I want to do is is the Zoom call and fix the lights and and uh, you know I have to leave my makeup on. Um, <laughs> I, I mean I've been apologetic. I there there are you know not with calling young people, just my friends. I say I'm I'm sorry. I'm phoning you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know I, I even. Even though most of the people that I know are, you know, are not working that much, um, they feel the same way. We we tend to talk on the phone more now, but not with my grandchildren. The phone is something that they have not like a huge amount of respect for as a phone call. Okay, yeah, um, Sarah. Uh, what are you finding with people? Um, is this just something that adds to the incredible burden of loneliness? Absolutely. And I find that it's certain, I mean, I, I take my hat off to, and my heart goes out to the, the parents that I speak to with very young children. So especially parents who have just had children during COVID, the COVID babies, as they're called, pandemic babies. Um, and, you know, those children are not being able to socialize in the same way, whether it be going to the mom and talks or the dads and talks groups, or even getting together with other family members, cousins, getting to know extended family. So yeah. it could be that a baby who's born at the beginning of COVID, you know, may not meet their extended family until they're maybe a year or older, which doesn't, I mean, they won't recollect that when they're much older, but it's still it takes away from their socialization from for young uh, for parents who have very young children they have been going out of their minds with the kids being home at you know from school that's been very difficult a lot of parents will say to me how difficult it is for them because they've often relied on the support of yeah. their parents who have come in to help them either in the house or they've dropped the kids off for half a day or sometimes two or three days a week so they really miss out on that support as well as the hugs um, and for the people that are older, for people who are especially living in long-term care facilities or away from family, not only are they cut off from their family members, often now they're only allowed one family member to represent the whole family who is, you know, checked every week for COVID and may or may not have been vaccinated by now. They're only entitled to that one person to visit them. And so they're not only cut off from their extended family, but they're also cut off from people that they're living in a residence with, who they look forward to getting together with to have meals and that kind of stuff. So I think that the isolation, the anxiety, the loneliness, the depression, um, I've never been as busy in my 30 years of practice. Um, it's just unbelievable. They say the cliche is that, you know, mental health concerns are you know, the new pandemic or part of the pandemic. And it's it's so true. I think we, 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 we're recognizing that and, and just the, the lack of support that families would have, you know, even the cousins getting together and that kind of thing, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's been really, really difficult on families. I, I have an interesting story from a very close friend of mine. Um, uh, and so her, she has a grandchild, her first grandchild in Ottawa, and we've been following his progress, like the most adorable, happiest boy. He turned one in at the very beginning of December. So he's just over a year old. And um, she told this story that her, her daughter, the, the boy's mom, uh, he's, he's just been with his mom for the last while. And she went, she met a very close family friend for a walk. And he hadn't been out with other people for a while. And suddenly this adorable, happy boy basically had, had a, a fit and was screaming and crying uh, because his mom's attention was a little divided on a walk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And because, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, they don't know. And then there, there are, I hear stories about kids whose talking is, is perhaps delayed. And, uh, when we come back from a break, I have a couple of friends who've had their grandchildren born, first grandchildren born, like within the last couple of weeks. And that's an adventure too. Um, I've got to take another break. I want to give the numbers out again. So people, uh, how are you feeling? Uh, are you able to communicate with your family one way or another on this family day? Uh, are you feeling lonely? Uh, 
what is going on with you. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we'll be right back with more on this very strange family day on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about this very strange family day where most people are in a feast or famine situation. They may be surrounded by too much family, maybe in a small place, or they can't see their family at all and they are missing them. And uh, I'd like to hear from the audience. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's go to Charlene in Toronto. Hi, Charlene. Hi. How are you doing? Hi. Fine. I'm trying to survive this pandemic. <laughs> and and what's your situation with your family? Well, most of them live in the States. I mean, I do have some people here. But I, I don't think anybody talks to each other. And uh, my cousin had a baby um, a year and a half ago, and he they were supposed to come up uh, last summer with the baby, and I was really looking forward to it. You know, I wanted to play with the baby and talk to him and do all you do. But they couldn't. So, you know, I'm seeing them on Zoom. And it's, it's, it's not easy to connect with a, you know, a one-year-old on Zoom. They, he doesn't know who I am. Um, and he'll do what every other, every one-year, what every one-year-old will do is go and just play with their toys. You know, they might say hi because they don't want to say that or something, but that's it. And, you know, my family from the, um, North Carolina was supposed to come. So it, I feel really, I feel really distant from my family, and it's hard. I I, I bet um, I'm th- thinking. Uh, how do you connect with a baby uh, on Zoom? That's uh, if anything, you know, this generation of of babies is going to be even more screen savvy than than they are already. But yeah, um, uh, Sarah or Lucy, do you have any thoughts on how to connect with a baby on Zoom? Well, it's actually WhatsApp. We were doing sorry. Oh, WhatsApp. Oh, do, okay, whatever. Yeah. So it's it's sorry right here. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I wish that I had an easy answer for that. I don't think you can connect with a baby on Zoom. I think that um, you know, a baby, as you said, will maybe be able to look at your face, maybe ultimately be able to recognize you if there's several Zoom conversations that have taken place. But really, as you mentioned, babies, the baby's job is to just play with his or her toys are engaged. And it's so hard because with, with babies, we want to be connected. We want to be face-to-face. We want to be physically touching them. They connect with our eyes. And so how do you get them to look at the exact spot on the screen to connect with your eyes? It's, it's so artificial. So I think so long as you get to see the baby and, you know, enjoy watching the baby grow, knowing that, please God, soon you'll be able to connect in person but unfortunately, that baby really won't know the people that they don't know until they're connecting more in person. Well, yeah, I know. Like, I make a joke is, oh, when I get to see him, he'll be in high school and he'll be glued to his cell phone. And, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of memes going around like that. But please, God, it'll be a lot sooner than that. <laughs> exactly. That's a good thought. Charlene, thanks for your call. All okay. the best to you. Okay. Let's, let's go to Jennifer in Cortez. Hi, hi Jennifer. Hi there. You're on the air. Um, go ahead. Okay, I have uh, two daughters. One's in Keswick, one's in Toronto. And we have four grandchildren, the 10- and 12-year-old living Curtis, and I haven't seen them very much at all for the last 12 months. And they have far too many friends in their little circle. Um, the eldest grandchildren are 22 and 25, and they're both at home. Um, and my daughter does, my eldest daughter comes out here once a week with uh, some groceries for us. Um, but my main problem is my husband has dementia. So it's just the two of us at home. And my fear is that he will fr- possibly forget the children uh, by the time he sees them. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'd love to hug them. Um, that's the hard part is the physical. But it might, I, the other concern is my husband and uh, talking to the children over WhatsApp or, or whatever, you know, and the little ones. Um, it's not the same as um, as being there physically. And if they when they see him again, 
how are they going to react? And and I think for us that's that's a big part of it that I don't have any answer to. And and you are able to to connect with them over WhatsApp. Yes, the young the youngest ones um, not on a regular basis, but they're busy with school and and other things at home and with their friends on on it. But but I do talk to them. But he doesn't participate in that. He's he's okay when he speaks with them, but he doesn't. He just sits back now. He's he's at that stage where he just sits back and and watches me talk to them. Hmm. So if they don't see him um, and he doesn't see them, hopefully the disease don't progress quickly. But if it does. Um, then that's, you know, that's, uh, I mean, obviously not, like I said, not <clears throat> not being able to see everybody is hard. It's oh. really hard, uh, especially at our age. And I guess for everybody our age, I remind myself of that. But for my husband not to see them and for them not to see him, I don't know how that's going to be later on. And that could be something really difficult to try and overcome when we are finally able to get together as a family again. Because it's been 12 months now, um, uh, it's... really, since it's been like this, you know. It's 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 really tough. Uh, Jennifer, thanks a lot for your call. Thank you for sharing that and all the best to you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are so many uh, permutations of this, Sarah. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking as Jennifer was talking, and I know this to be true with a lot of other people I talk to as well, that, you know, as we get older, um, we the, the the pressure the time is even more precious than when we were younger because we know that we have less of it to live, and so as each year passes by, you know, it's a for a 25 year old it might feel like well we have you know a year doesn't feel as long because we have many more years to be here, but when we're 60s, 70s, you know, older uh or even our fifties, we we recognize the, the how quickly time passes and we we want to hold on to every precious moment with our families. And so a year is an incredibly long time. And I'm thinking, you know, I think that it's so much more complicated to be with families. But I would love to think that people are always weighing out the risks and rewards and thinking of creative ways to get together. So for example, right now today at my home, I have my two adult daughters here and my nephew who lives alone. And so they typically, and my nephew for sure, because I don't know his whereabouts as much, he has agreed to quarantine two weeks prior to coming to our home. And we make sure that when he comes over, he spends like as much time here as he can because we don't know when the next time we'll see him is. But so long as they quarantine and don't spend time with other people and we know that they don't, you know, don't have COVID or we can assume they don't have COVID after two weeks of not showing any symptoms, then we're happy to have them in our home in a small bubble. And I know that that's so much more difficult if you have adult children with younger children who are at school, for example, because that's made a huge difference. Or even, you know, teenagers, as you mentioned, who really, you know, are more inclined to hang out with their friends or push the limits a little bit more. But if you have uh, grandchildren who are a little bit older, maybe in their 20s, maybe they would be willing to quarantine or not see anybody for a period of two weeks and then come and spend a night or two or even a week at your house, Hmm. even if they come one at a time. I think that there are creative ways of getting together with people in a safe way. But when we think about the passage of time passing by, we really have to weigh out the risks and awards. Um, yeah, I, you know, I agree with you. That's something that my husband and I feel very strongly is our time is limited, their time is not. But, and that they will remember this pandemic in a very different way, you know, in, in a few years' time. On the other hand, what you're suggesting, perhaps you can do with kids who are older, who are working virtually, but you can't do it with grandchildren who are right. about to go back to school. That's right. And, and, you know, on and off, school has been on. That's right. And, and, and that's what, yeah, go ahead. And, 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 that's, and that's what um, causes so many issues for grand, grandparents of my generation who are um, a bit younger, uh, a bit more energetic, who really want to be with their kids, with their grandchildren, um, you know, so that we can tell them the things that, you know, we provide roots. We provide tradition. We provide right. family history, right. and and you just it, you know, you just it's very hard to do, 
Lucy, if I can jump in, sure. Lucy, because we're, we're running out of time. Uh, you, of course, are a celebrated food writer, cookbook author, and um, have you tried sort of cooking with them over oh, Zoom? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? Um, my, my granddaughter, Anna, who I think you've met, Libby, um, has turned into an absolutely incredible cook. She bakes She's better than me, I think. She bakes sourdough. She she does everything. And my other granddaughter, Ella, um, has done um, vegan. Um, she's gotten herself involved with vegan cooking. And yes, so the, the, the traditions are there, but that's not really, you know, I can do cooking classes with them, but it's hard again over Zoom because you can't feel their dough or, you know, see what real the texture of pasta really is. But I ha- I did send them for uh, virtual cooking classes, and that worked out quite well. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking that, um, and again, we have like a minute left, food is, is so much a part of the family getting together. Oh, my God, yes. That, that uh, they're surely, uh, for all of us, uh, not just uh, people who are expert like you, there might be a way to to do some cooking, even if if you say are going to cook the same thing on the same night and then send well, pictures. <laughs> one thing that I did do is at Christmas time is I made dinner for everybody. We packaged it up, um, sent it over to their houses, and then we all had the same dinner. Because yeah. I always cook Christmas dinner, so it was, you know, a way of doing it. And it's something you can do on a Sunday night. Exactly. And since we are just about out of time, I'm going to give you each uh, 20 or maximum 30 seconds. Lucy, what would you like to leave us with? Um, I just, I, I think that what I feel really strongly is that you should try to keep your connections up with your grandchildren and not be insulted when they answer your texts with yes or no, because that's how they answer texts. And to understand how they react to all of this and try to to uh, relate to them on their level because then they relate back to you. Okay, Sarah, 20 seconds. Yeah, just I, one of the things I wanted to mention was I know that the weather isn't always conducive to it, but going for distanced walks, if you yes. can, with your grandchildren or with any other family members, either you know with masks or without, depending on how far you're walking from one another, um, is another option for getting together, um, even if you can't uh, give each other physical hugs. Okay, uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Sarah Dimmerman and Lucy Waverman. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Happy Family Day, everybody. That is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.